Welcome to The Audible, presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman. This is actually a bit of an emergency episode of The Audible. We weren't planning to record until Thursday morning. And then Wednesday afternoon Pacific time, suddenly, after months of waiting for some sort of clarity about what these conferences are planning to do this season, we got at least one and possibly two back-to-back which is funny, Bruce, because I'm looking at my phone. It is currently 2.11 p.m. Pacific. And at 12.52, less than an hour and a half ago, I texted you and said that we might need to get a, a guest for tomorrow because no, things remain as cloudy as ever. And we can't go 45 minutes under the status of the season, that's for sure. Uh, now we might just be able to do that um, with the ACC's news. We're going to bring on our colleague Matt Fortuna, who knows the ACC and in, in particular Notre Dame very well. I mean, I don't know about you, but the first thing that jumps out to me is, wow, Notre Dame is going to play for a conference championship for the first time in its entire history. Yeah, I think the other thing was, it seems to be quite a, I don't want to say concession, maybe that's the wrong word to use, but in terms of the money, because obviously Notre Dame, with its home games on on NBC, to share that with everybody else is pretty significant, but obviously we're in uncharted waters with all this stuff going on, right? You know, what choice do they have, I guess, is the question. They were left with all that with the Big Ten and Pac-12 going to conference only uh, and with no guarantee that the others won't do the same. They needed a fallback and, or they weren't going to have much of a schedule. And being a partial member of the ACC, the ACC uh, made it happen for them um, with some concessions in return. So for those who haven't seen the press release, um, The plan as of now, and with everything we have to say, caveat, it's dependent on, uh, let's see, what's the the language they used? If public health guidance allows, that's what they said. If public health guidance allows, college football, the ACC football season will begin the week of September 7th. So that would be um, only a week later than when they were going to open. It'll be everybody will play 10 conference games plus one non-conference game. The non-conference game has to be against an opponent in your own state that follows the same medical guidelines as the ACC teams. So 10 conference games. Notre Dame will play a full 10 conference game schedule themselves. They are eligible for the conference championship. And we don't have any dates, but we do have this this very um, flashy schedule graphic of all the helmets. Uh, showing us which 10 teams each each of them is going to play. So um, leaving out for a second just the idea of is this actually going to be feasible? Are they actually going to play starting the week of September 7th? Even though this had all been rumored for weeks. Well, but it's actually been, you know what, it's actually been rumored since the Pac-12 Big Ten conference-only stuff. Because if you remember, um, our friend Brett McMurphy had reported something about the ACC and I remember talking to sources within the league who had said this was one of the plans that they had and Notre Dame would would be a part of that and that was I don't know is that a month ago now it's been several weeks this this exact model has been reported by numerous people as the one they were going to vote on it just wasn't clear if it was actually going to get voted on today but something about seeing the graphic and seeing the logos and seeing the dates just made it 
real. Like, wow, this this is really happening. This this uh, you know, and I, I look forward to seeing similar ones from the Pac-12 and the Big Ten. We should also note that at, at a, almost exactly the time they announced this, Ross Dellinger from Sports Illustrated tweeted that the SEC may now be moving toward a conference-only schedule. This is He used the word very fluid, so I don't want to go too far into it because who knows what will actually get decided, but that that is at least being discussed. Yeah, there are some thoughts that the SEC coaches are expected to hear something on Friday from by Friday of their from their leadership. Also, the Pac-12 could be getting their schedule as well on Friday. So there's a lot of chatter about that in those circles. So a bunch of stuff going on um, as related to the ACC part of this. 11 games to be played over at least 13 weeks with each team having two open dates to manage it and also only one division. Um, so these are all encouraging things. One thing I would... Uh, Andy Staples and I did a story at the beginning of this week about kind of what was to lay out in the next you know two weeks or so. And one of the things that came out of it from my conversations with a bunch of ADs and one of them had said, because I said, you know, you have on one hand, you have a lot of folks in the SEC and in the ACC and certainly in the Pac-12 who have talked about a, a later schedule. And some of those folks have actually talked about it possibly being into in mid to late September start, whereas you had the Big 12 with Oklahoma and Kansas already lining up games in that week zero window. So you had people going in what seemed like a little bit different directions. And one thing an AD had told me was, uh, and this was just two days ago, and he said, you know, I feel like people thought everybody was going to be on the same page. And only thing I've seen is uh, everyone seems to be going kind of out for their own best interest. And it's really been a lot more individualized than people were trying to portray it as we've gotten further into this process. Oh yeah. I never believed for a second that there would be any sort of unified resolution to all this. That's that never in the history of college football have these conferences worked together on much of anything except like they drafted NIL legislation recently, but um, you know, they're always going to act in their own self-interest and the perfect example is what just happened where the ACC just literally just announced the 10 plus one and the plus one, they're doing that entirely to preserve Georgia, Georgia Tech, Florida, Florida State, Louisville, Kentucky, and South Carolina, Clemson. And then I'm telling you, like almost at the same time was Ross's report that the SEC may actually go conference only. You would think they would coordinate that uh, before one puts that out there. But, you know, that would be that would be too organized. That would be that would be a professional sports thing to do not a college sports thing to do. Um, one other thing we should get into before we bring Matt on. Uh, we have another thing that's been rumored for some time, and, and we saw the first domino, if you will, Caleb Farley. Um, projected first-round pick, Virginia Tech cornerback, becomes the first, not the first player in any of college football, but the first high-profile, uh, likely high-draft pick who announced he is opting out of the 2020 season to start preparing for the 2021 draft. You talked to coaches about this recently, but that was when it was a spring season possibility. Yeah, what's cha- what's what's changed with this, Stu? Uh, one of the coaches I talked to as a personnel director had said, had the feeling this would start happening once I saw all the NFL guys start opting out. I'm sure it will. Ha- this will have a domino effect. 
Uh, Caleb Farley, it should be noted, he was a guy who was high up on our freaks list. 6'2 cornerback with blazing speed, you know, 24 mile per hour, GPS numbers remarkable. He is coming off back surgery that he had uh, after last season. So it's not like uh, it, it's not like there aren't some health concerns with him going into this as well. So I think this is clearly a business decision. And uh, I wouldn't, I, you know, I don't think you're going to see hundreds of guys going but I think for in a case like this where you have a guy who is high up on the NFL's radar I think that it's a calculated business decision for other guys I'm not sure how much they they factor in going well the NFL guys are opting out so let me make a let me make a business decision even if I don't have much leverage or I would say leverage but just I'm not seen as like a touted prospect who doesn't need necessarily the film to show for it Caleb Farley already has that Really, it's not one size fits all here. I mean, Caleb Farley, who's thinking about his NFL future, and also we should mention his he, his mom died from cancer in 2018, and that was you know he put out a quick video with his family members right behind him and mentioned that um, you know mentioned that full on as part of you know why he's concerned for his health and the health of his family members, and so there may be many. I would, you know, as you would put, maybe put rank and file college football players who have the same concerns, but the, the I think the ones that are going to be in the hardest position as they decide to play or not is the guys who are not as surefire to go as high in the draft as Caleb Farley, but are still, but also are not like redshirt freshmen who haven't played yet. You know, guys who really feel like if they don't pl- feel a lot of pressure that if they don't play, it's going to hurt their um, future NFL prospects. All right, so with that said, let's bring on our guest to go deeper into the ACC news, especially with also some focus on Notre Dame. Stu, back to the podcast in a second. The final 22 teams have made it their way to Orlando and are ready to get back on the court. And man, we love that. While the ending to this year's basketball season will be different than years past, there will be no shortage of excitement. And there is no better place to get all the action than DraftKings, the leader in one-day fantasy sports. To celebrate the return of basketball, DraftKings will have not one, but two Two $1 million prizes throughout the first two days of the resume season. So get in on all the action now. If you haven't tried it yet, fantasy basketball is easy to play. Here's what you do. You just pick eight players, stay under the salary cap, and pile up points for three-pointers, rebounds, assists, and more. There's no better way to put your basketball knowledge to the test than to compete for a shot at $1 million. That's right, $1 million. But if basketball isn't for you, don't worry, DraftKings is offering plenty of fantasy golf action on this week's tournament. John Hayes, you're a producer. I know you love golf as much as I do, so that's another opportunity for you to win some money. With millions of dollars up for grabs this week, there is no better place to have skin in the game than with DraftKings. Download the DraftKings app now and use promo code RUN, that's R-U-N, to get a free shot at millions of dollars, that's plural, millions of dollars, up for grabs this week with your first deposit. That's promo code RUN to get a free shot at millions of dollars with your first deposit only at DraftKings. There's a minimum of $5 deposit required. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for details.
We're pleased to be joined now by our colleague, Matt Fortuna. Nobody's more plugged in in the ACC and also Notre Dame, who is now, at least for one football season, a member of the ACC. We were just talking a little bit offline, Matt, but it's been kind of a whirlwind where this meeting of the presidents uh, for, for Wednesday, we knew about it for a while, and they were going to first was they're going to vote on one of a few schedule models and then the day before it became no they're not ready to vote it's going to get pushed back a week and then all of a sudden bam with almost no warning there was a full press release with the whole schedule model and everything what happened Uh, like everything else when it comes to college football news amid a pandemic i think everyone is learning things uh from anyone other than the primary source so to speak right i mean this was a rare case where uh, a reporter didn't break this story. The, the league was able to put this story out on its own terms. And I think, you know, being that this was a president-driven decision, that probably shouldn't be too surprising because those guys are the ultimate um, shot callers when it comes to whether there will or won't be football uh, this fall. But, uh, you know, athletic directors were not on that board of governors meeting call today. Um, you know, they, they had, you know, kept them abreast of what they were talking about, of models and so forth. But uh, as you said, I mean, I was told as as recently as as yesterday, Tuesday, that um, the ADs were not ready to present uh, a a model that they were ready to go with just yet. In light of uh, the Marlins fiasco with the MLB on Monday and the evergreen situation going on there, uh, they still wanted to, to, to flesh things out and, and figure out what the best approach is. And I do think it's the irony of all ironies that as soon as the ACC puts out this press release, our friend Ross Dellinger over at Sports Illustrated has a report saying the SEC uh, is going to go conference only, which uh, in many ways I can't help but think contradicts what the ACC was trying to accomplish here, right, Uh, when they want to keep that one non-conference late open. Matt, let me ask you this. Um, So as part of this deal, Notre Dame is going to share the TV revenue from its home games with the rest of the members. Uh, how how big of a concession is that for them? And was do you think that was a, had been a stumbling block before? And what do you think was in Jack Swarbrick's mind when he when this kind of deal was presented to him? I think operating under the assumption here for the sake of this conversation that there will be a season, I I think that's a pretty big concession from Notre Dame. Um, That's a a deal as a private school that um, is not public. We don't know the details. I mean, we, we, you know, uh, have very strong educated guesses, if you will, that it's in the range of $15 million or so, and that it's significantly less than what they would be getting uh, from a TV revenue distribution standpoint if they had joined a conference fully. Uh, but but I, I don't think that's a, a small matter um, that, that Notre Dame is is all in on the ACC, at least for this year, that they will be sharing that revenue and that they'll be, you know, frankly, the big picture, first time in 158 years of Notre Dame football, they're going to enter a season competing for a conference championship. I mean, that's, that's a very, very uh, big thing. Even, you know, Say they finish in third place, right? They don't even, you know, come close to qualifying for the ACC if the season goes on. Just the fact that we're saying that um, that Notre Dame fans are, are reading that and hearing that and learning that about their school today, I think that is a very, very big headline um, when you talk about the identity of Notre Dame, not just as a football program but as an institution. It's extraordinary. I, mean, I don't think you can understate how. I mean, there, there. It's one of those issues or or griping points that for my whole career. I mean, it's just been a constant. Why won't they join a conference? Somebody should force them to join a conference. And then it's not permanent, obviously, but something finally put them in a position where they 
had to join a conference. And I don't know, the giving away the TV money, you know, I don't I don't have the numbers, but that could end up being a wash because they don't make that much from NBC. And if they also get to now get a bigger share, a full share of the, you know, the larger ACC ESPN deal, I mean, for all we know, they're gonna make more money out of it. I don't know. But the fact that they, so how, how you know the Notre Dame fan base, like how are they going to be feeling about this? There's the independence is such a point of pride, obviously, but also if they didn't do this, there was a decent chance they were going to end up with like a six game schedule. I think the initial reaction will be surprise and disappointment. Uh, now, those feelings may linger throughout the course of this 2020 college football season, or they could be gone Tuesday when the Board of Governors of the NCAA makes a ruling on uh, how, if and how this season will proceed. Uh, and I can't help but think, and I may sound cynical here, but part of me wonders if in the back of the decision makers' minds at Notre Dame, they know what like the silent part is out loud, so to speak, that they just don't think that a season is going to be feasible. And if it makes everyone happy and everything copacetic to just say yes and concede and to have everyone move forward in as unified of a front as possible under one umbrella as the ACC, uh, then they were willing to do that and maybe could, could, you know bank that goodwill on the back end. I, I don't know that. That's me kind of uh, theorizing here and thinking out loud. But I, I do think that, that headline, you know, just seeing the ACC press release, seeing Notre Dame eligible for a conference title game, I think that is a not insignificant. Um, it's just like you said, we it's a conversation, it's a question, uh, it, it's taken up. You know, a chapter of your book, God knows how many hours of our time on Twitter and in mailbags and so forth uh, to, to, to hear the words Notre Dame. And let's say, hey, you know, they do play Clemson on their schedule and it's uh, uh, there are no divisions this year. So the top two uh, winning percentage teams will go hypothetically. Um, they could lose to Clemson and beat Clemson or, or beat Clemson and lose to Clemson. Right. Um, for the ACC title. I mean, I'm, I'm just picturing right now. Their hockey team is currently the back-to-back Big Ten champions. I'm trying to picture a, a Big Ten championship uh, banner uh, at the Compton Ice Pavilion uh, right, across, right down the road from an ACC championship banner uh, at Notre Dame Stadium if the season were to go through and if they were to, w- to win the league because that would be pretty, pretty funny. It would seem like it would make them more likely, though, for this to at some point be permanent because the argument I've always heard is Notre Dame loves the aspect of of the uniqueness of not being uh, like everybody else. At least for this year, with all the craziness that's going on, they're going to be like everybody else to a large degree. They could find out they really like it. Like, hey, this is cool to be in contention for a conference championship in November. So, so handicap that, Matt. I mean, what you know? Obviously, I'm not. We don't even know if this, as you said, we don't know what there. You know, there may not be a, even a season, but and we don't know how teams are going to handle it. But handicap what you think, and this is obviously a big crystal ball, would create a scenario where it's like, all right, maybe let's just make this permanent. This is a this is more this is less trouble than it's worth, or more trouble than it's worth to keep it the other way. I think the one catchall. Um independent of the pandemic and what's going on right now would be if the college football playoff selection committee just put that rule in, so to speak, um, and said, you need to win a conference championship to be in the playoff. Notre Dame, join a conference, plain and simple. I think that would be something that would push them. Um, I think long-term, especially as Commissioner John Swafford announced he will retire um, at year's end, at academic year's end, um, I think that's something to monitor in the sense of 
This is a league that is so Carolina-based that has so many Notre Dame ties and influence. When you look at the late Gene Corrigan, who who preceded John Swafford as ACC commissioner, he was a Notre Dame athletic director. His son, Boo Corrigan, is now the athletic director at North Carolina State. Bubba Cunningham, a Notre Dame graduate, is North Carolina's athletic director. Kevin White at Duke used to be the AD at Notre Dame and so forth. I think there's so many people really within the fabric of the ACC right now, John Swafford among them, who understands the significance uh, of having Notre Dame as an independent for for both the greater good of college football and for you know the school's identity, uh, what that means. And even if that means just having them as a partial member that plays five or six football games a year in the ACC, I think those guys, uh, given their ties to the place, um, are willing to make that concession, if you will. Uh, what I do wonder is if there's a new commissioner who, who doesn't have as strong ties to, to the league and to Notre Dame, if and when um, all those ADs turn over, uh, particularly those Carolina schools that have uh, Notre Dame grads or former Notre Dame employees in front of them, if a lot of the the decision makers within the league uh, who, who come in this next wave, if you will, if they're guys who and girls who don't uh, subscribe to you know the tradition and the pageantry, if you will, of Notre Dame's identity being wrapped up in this. I think that's how ultimately this would force Notre Dame's hand is, um, you know what, like we're not beholden to what you did in 1988, guys. You know, some of us may not even have been alive back then. Like you guys are not the big kids on the block the way you used to be. Uh, it's time to to grow up and play by the same rules as everybody else and get in line because, um, you know, we're, we're just not going to uh, cater to you the way we have now. And, and I, I don't think – as beneficial and as easy as this relationship makes matters for Notre Dame on the scheduling front and on the Olympic sports front and basketball front, uh, the ACC is getting a lot out of this too, even though it's only just five games a year. I mean, uh, whether it's sellouts, whether it's TV ratings, whether it's um, the, the means to move, move forward and get an ACC network. I'm not sure if that's possible if you don't have Notre Dame playing uh, five conference games a year. Uh, so I, I think the, the relationship is much more mutually beneficial than uh, simple, hey, ACC's bailing out Notre Dame because Notre Dame doesn't want to give in. But I do think uh, the people calling the shots as we enter this kind of pivot point in college athletics, if there are enough people unfamiliar or untethered to the history and tradition of Notre Dame, that could be a scenario that ultimately forces their hand. Back to the podcast in a second, but first word about earnest now's the time to get your student loan payments under control you could be saving by refinancing your student loans with earnest if you've been making the same monthly payment on your student loans for the last couple years odds are you could reduce your payment and save by refinancing with earnest even if you've refinanced before with today's low rate environment most people could save by refinancing again checking your new rate is fast and easy to start complete a few questions online it only takes two minutes and then you'll get a personalized rate estimate without affecting your credit score. Want to change your monthly payment? Combine many loans into one easy payment or get a better rate? Earnest makes it easy. Plus, there's no origination fee or any other fees. Plus, the internet loves Earnest's customer service. They're rated 9.4 out of 10 on Trustpilot, and now you can get a $100 cash bonus when you refinance a student loan with earnest.com audible. Once again, you get a $100 cash bonus when you refi your student loan at earnest.com slash audible. So I don't know if you guys have had a chance to pour over these schedules yet, but uh, I just did a quick look 
my, my first thought in terms of like, hey, did anybody catch a big break was to say, well, who's not playing Clemson? And the four teams not playing Clemson are Duke, Louisville, UNC, which seems significant to me since a lot of people think they're going to be pretty good, and NC State. Only one of those four is not playing either Clemson or Notre Dame, and that is NC State. Is this going to be, does this mean this is going to be Dave Doran's year? <laughs> All the cards are playing right for him. Well, he's got three contract extensions. And he's been on the hot seat at least four times, so I think something right has to give right here. Um, that's an interesting question. I mean, NC State, and this is my personal theory, and I've shared this probably with you guys before off air and, and others. To me, that place is a sleeping giant. Um, I know they've recruited pretty well there, but you you go to a game day environment. I was there for a Thursday night game against Syracuse last year. Two teams that were terrible and didn't make a bowl game. And it's an SEC environment. I mean, they sell 44,000 season tickets a year without even lifting a finger. They just have this natural, uh, crazy, rabid fan base that is just dying for a winner there. And you've got more than enough kids, I think, in state uh, who are talented enough to to make that place a really good uh, football program. So as good as Dave Doran has done relative to the history of that place, uh, I look at that place and I say, why can't they be what what Virginia Tech was, you know, uh, under some of Frank Beamer's better years? Um, I I see no reason why that can't happen. And I say that obviously with the understanding that uh, there's a natural affinity in that state for everyone who grew up to to bleed Carolina blue, if you will. And Mac Brown has tapped into that passion better than, than probably anyone in just a, a year and a half there. And he's really cleaning up on the recruiting trail. But uh, I, I think it's put up or shut up time for Dave Dorn and his staff, given the fact that they have a new athletic director there, too, who, who may not be uh, as beholden to him as, as Debbie Yao was uh, before Boo Corrigan got there. Well, it is exciting that we feel like we're talking about actual football stuff. I don't know if that feels cathartic to you guys, but it kind of does here in it. It really does. I mean, this really gave me a jolt of energy. Real quick, regardless of the schedule, like who each, let's each say, who's your initial instinct of who would play Clemson in the eighth? Because now we're not, we don't have to think about divisions. You just pick the top two. Who's your, who's your off the cuff, this team's going to play Clemson in the ACC title game? I'm going to say North Carolina. Um, they host, they get Notre Dame at home and they don't get Clemson. Um, and if you do this, does it really matter though if they're playing at home or on the road? If there's not going to be anybody in the stands, yeah, good, good point. I mean, yeah, well, I guess you still have to travel. The travel, the, the stress of that, yeah. I mean, we'll figure out, right? We're still learning with baseball, even. But um, I just think North Carolina has all the ingredients to, to be that trendy, uh, off the beaten path uh, uh, sleeper this year. Uh, you know, obviously they have the momentum of the recruiting trail, but they have a quarterback who was a freshman All American last year in Sam Howell. Uh, they Probably should have beaten Clemson last year. They don't get Clemson this year. Uh, you know, even though they're playing coastal opponents, even though they're not in the quote unquote coastal division this year, uh, I think they have a, a fairly easy path. Whereas, and this will be interesting, right? If considering it's a top two uh, win percentage within the league, I mean, what happens in a scenario where you have three or four nine and one ACC teams at the year's end, right? I mean, assuming Notre Dame loses to Clemson and North Carolina loses, you know, somewhere else down the road. Uh, but, but I'll say North Carolina right now, uh, just because I, I just feel like they're a deservingly trendy pick and the cards seem to be aligning for them, especially with this schedule release of avoiding Clemson the first time that, uh, why not? Everything has turned up Mac Brown the past two years. Let, let's add one more feather to his cap. I'm going to say Pitt. Uh, I know they have to go to Clemson. They also have to go to Miami who should be pretty good. Pat Narduzzi's teams are so unpredictable, or have been, but he's got a really good quarterback in Kenny Pickett, I think, and they have some good players on defense. 
for some reason, I'm gonna, uh, you know what? I'm gonna go with Pitt. I feel like there's a there's either a wild card in there. Whether North Carolina, I feel like too many people are jumping on the bandwagon. Not not this is not a knock on you, Matt. I felt like this beforehand, <laughs> but I just feel like so many people are on the North Carolina bandwagon. Uh, I still think they'll be good, but I'm gonna go Pitt. You know that that defense was top ten last year, and they were missing two of their best players. I mean, that is a legitimate contender to be the best defense in the country this year. Uh, they do got to go to Clemson, but you know what? They're also the last team to ever win at Clemson four years ago uh, on a game-winning field goal. So uh, they are wildly inconsistent, which is why I'm always hesitant to put my full faith in them. They, I mean, the year they beat Clemson, they beat Penn State as well, and they lost to Northwestern and finished eight and five uh, last year. You know, they ended UCF's 34 game-winning streak or whatever it was. And they ended up losing to, to teams that didn't even make a bowl game. It, it, uh, or I'm sorry, Boston College and Miami, who made bowl games and finished with losing records. So they're, they're just so all over the place that uh, I, I take a wait-and-see approach with them, uh, given how fickle they can be. But they definitely have the talent on that roster to, to make a run, at least at making the ACC title game this year. I like both those teams. But just to be different from you guys, I'll go with Scott Satterfield's Louisville Cardinals tremendous improvement in year one should be even better this year they've got their quarterback and i was just looking at their little schedule breakdown here and while they do play notre dame on the road uh the road games are boston college first year coach georgia tech first year uh not first year coach but just not very good notre dame the tough one at Pitt, who you guys are saying is going to have like the steel curtain defense and virginia who no bryce perkins so um I'll, I'll ride with the cards for now. No Miami. Like, what will it take for someone to finally buy in on Miami? <laughs> Especially now that they have to it's play. A, that's Clemson. a great question. I can't. None of us. None of that's interesting. None of us said Miami, even though they are not playing Notre Dame. They're uh, at Clemson now, though, which they weren't before. Yeah. <laughs> why? Why we wouldn't have used this as a perfect excuse to have another Notre Dame Miami game is beyond me. But remember, it said highest winning percentage for, and it said that for a reason. I don't think anybody has any confidence right. that they're all going to get all ten games in. I, 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 I read that fine print as well, and I, I had the same takeaway. 11 games over a 13-week uh, span. I mean, we're seeing what's happening with Michigan State and Rutgers now, right? Two weeks for you know practicing or, or lifting, I should say, amongst themselves. There's still a long, long way to go. But I'm in the same boat as you guys. It is a breath of fresh air to be talking to you guys about football schedules, scenarios, coaching hot seats, uh, you know, all, all the good old hot takes we used to have pre-pandemic. Awesome. Matt, thanks for joining us on Short Notice. We'll talk to you again soon. Long time, first time. Happy to finally be here. And uh, I felt like I was the Bob Sacamano of the show. Bruce constantly mentions your name. Yes, you've you've been mentioned on the podcast plenty of times. (laughs) Yeah. Bob Sacamano, I do exist. But thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. Back to the podcast in a second. But first, Bruce, this is an awesome new sponsor we have. We both got a package over the weekend. We both uh, rushed out to cook it. It's chicken ribs, chicken that tastes like ribs. And it really does. Right. And one of the best things about it, it is healthy barbecue. And what does that mean, Stu? It means 75% less fat and calories than traditional pork ribs. Uh, Stu, we both had had it this weekend. And the thing that I really liked was it was very filling. Uh, I thought it was really good cuts of chicken. And it had some really good flavor. I was, I don't say pleasantly surprised, but I was very pleased with what with uh, with what a longtime listener of the show, and I think we're burying the lead there. The fact that 
uh, a diehard college football fan who has listened to this show for many years is now a proud sponsor and, and we couldn't be happier about that. It's a perfect natural fit. It also, it's great. You know, if we are allowed to tailgate this year, it's great for tailgating. It's free two day shipping nationwide vacuum package right from the smokehouse. I just, you can just take it, it was in the packaging, individual wrap, you know, portions, and you can just stick it right in there and boil it without even thawing it. I did that the first time. And then the second time I put it in the oven, made it a little crispier. I think that's the way to go. You can throw it on the grill or if you're Andy Staples and you've got an air fryer, go for it. Great barbecue takes time, but chicken ribs makes it easy. Fully cooked from the smokehouse, chicken ribs are authentic barbecue ready in just minutes. Go to www.chickenribs.com and use code audible to get $10 off plus free two-day shipping. Who doesn't love perfectly smoked meat for the big game, whether at home or the tailgate? That's chickenribs.com, code audible for $10 off plus free two-day shipping. Okay, Bruce, let's go to the mailbag. As always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. And uh, we start with Ethan Vieja. He says, playing the Ari Wasserman theory forward. I assume he's referring to Ari's, uh, well, whatever it is has to do with recruiting. Messy evaluation. Is that or fish, fish filet? Yeah. <laughs> one of two things. Well, it's that, yeah, it's one of those two. Um, if it, I guess his theory is that a messy evaluation year will lead to higher than average five and four star recruits missing at big schools because of lack of fit, personality, or other factors that are missed from the absence of. Okay, he's saying that schools are going to miss on more uh, five and four stars than usual. At the same time, three star gems are not discovered by the big time programs, which benefit that are not in the top tier of recruiting rankings, but develop raw talent. Who is primed to step up in this world? Mark D'Antonio's Michigan State would have been the ultimate fit, but he is gone. Okay, Stu. I think that this is a really interesting point because I think he's right. There is less time for the evaluation. Also, you have a bunch of players, and we don't know how many at this point, but you have a bunch of players who may not have a senior season, right, before a signing day. So that only adds to it, where especially like TCU – when Gary Patterson really elevated that program, it was because a lot of times, whether it was an Andy Dalton or was a handful of other guys, they waited till late in their senior season or even after the season before they offered. And so they had a clearer picture of what they were getting. And so I think not just, you know, look, you can, you can do Zooms and have people uh, do video calls and different things, but you didn't get to work them out in camp before their senior year. There's a lot less of a clearer picture on what you're having and honestly there's a lot less of a clearer picture for what the people who put them in the star system are going off of because it's a little bit like you know a lot of times they will base their star rankings on who's offering a guy so it's just kind of a little bit of a a uh, carryover from that so i mean i think you know we think we're, right now we're so focused on this year this coming season is it going to happen how's it going to happen but the recruiting component of COVID is going to have ripple effects for the next four or five years. And and also keep in mind that, and I don't know, it's been months since this came up, but the, the proposal for the one-time transfer exemption, that one time you can play without sitting out a year, uh, I believe is going to get voted on in January, making it easier for players to transfer. I mean, you could see massive numbers of kids who just 
through this haphazard recruiting year, ended up at the wrong school and transfer, right? I mean, not already lots of guys are transferring, but if they know they don't have to sit out a year, like, I just think we could see a lot of guys right after their freshman year transfer. You could also see, see Stu, because of what you referenced, uh, a lot of kids not get scholarship spots because it wouldn't surprise me if schools maybe only sign 20 instead of 25 or maybe even less than that, depending on how much room they wanted to free up for transfers, not just graduate transfers. I mean, that's going to probably indicate, I would, my hunch is, and this came up, I did a story about the the challenges of the one-time transfer exemption without any roster flexibility going towards it. And that story kind of brought into it, because I heard it from coaches, what happens when the next cycle comes up where you have to, where you you know, you're allowed 25 initials. Maybe you don't sign that many kids on the front end, especially. And that was even before this thing was had crystallized. Now all of a sudden we're looking at a lot of kids who won't be probably playing for their senior year. So there's even less of a picture that you're kind of riding on. What a mess. Everything's just a mess right now. Stu, the next question from James Cunningham. Uh, regarding the logic you employed when making the argument that group of five schools should pack it up and move to the spring so they can get exposure, uh, that's also referencing not just the group of five, but also the FCS schools. Uh, You made the argument that no group of five team can make the CFP and that they are playing for one New Year's Six game. The same argument can be said for the vast majority of college football. Truly, do you believe that Kansas or Wake Forest or NC State or Oregon State or Vanderbilt or Rutgers have a better shot at the CFP spot than App State? That the ratings for those teams are better than the MAC on a Tuesday. In truth, there are only about three, these three same three teams can win a national championship in a given year, Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State. There are a group of 10 to 15 that can make a CFP run, but given that the perfect season can win a national championship. So using your argument, that's 18 teams can make the CFP should break away and leave the rest for the next year. Well, he's right from a competitive standpoint, certainly you know, I've said many times on here that the pool of teams that can realistically contend for a national championship is fairly small. And, you know, there's a lot of power five teams out there that may never make a college football playoff, certainly not when it's four teams. That being said, a, a noon ESPN uh, Big Ten game between Purdue and Iowa is still going to do bigger TV numbers than pretty much any group of five matchup you can name played on a Saturday. And Bruce, your point was that if, if rather than having those games played in the fall and going up against said Purdue Iowa game, they should play in the spring when there's no other competition. Right. And also the part, and, and James mentioned this about the Tuesday, that's part of the, part of the deal is you won't have to play on a Tuesday or Wednesday night in November just to try to get some ratings, even though you know a lot of your fans aren't going to want to show up because they have to work the next day. A lot of coaches would much prefer to get to play on a Saturday. So look, I mean, James's point, I think is, is it's, there's, a, there's validity to it. Um, by the same token, though, and again, I would use this example. When Bill Snyder was at Kansas State, when they were rolling, you know, on profile, you wouldn't think they would they would be one of those ten to fifteen teams, but they were. I mean, they could have they could have won a national title back then. I mean, if you have the right coach and they have built the program 
well, they could compete for a national title. They could certainly get to a playoff game. So I, I think, again, I think just because people look at it and say, well, this team has all the five stars or whatever, um, you know, I don't, I don't, my hunch is most people did not think when Ed Ogeron signed his first class, they were going to win a national title in that class's cycle. I'm guessing almost nobody thought it, maybe outside of, you know, maybe him and a couple other people in his office. So I do think that that's, again, it's LSU. People have won national titles there before. But it's, my point is, you know, it, if you have the right coach and you have the right system around you, that you are not precluded because Ohio State and Alabama and Clemson certainly have all the advantages right now. Because nobody thought, nobody saw Dabo Sweeney coming either when he got going. So, I think that's that's the point of it. If if Dabo Sweeney was at NC State as opposed to Clemson, I mean, do you think it'd be much different? That NC State would be much different, or that I'm Clemson? saying no. Like, I mean, if you have the right coach in the right, now, granted, there's advantages with with uh, you know with 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 Clemson, but at the same point, it wasn't like Clemson was was thriving before he got there. I think most programs have a ceiling. I don't think NC State's ceiling is national championship, but with the right coach, Dabo or whoever else, you know, there are models out there. And, uh, you know, you think about Oregon was a completely uh, irrelevant program in, the, in what was then the Pac-10 up until the mid-90s. Wisconsin was terrible in the Big Ten for decades until Barry Alvarez. Like, it is possible to transform a program where a power five program like that, whereas group of five until they can get that, that better conference affiliation. I just think, you know, what your, your best case scenario is what UCF is now, I think, or, well, no, your best case scenario is probably what Boise state is now. Boise state actually does do decent uh, TV numbers. I was just looking here at um, last year. I looked it up. So on September 7th at noon Eastern, Syracuse played Maryland on ESPN. Neither of those teams anybody would have thought is going to go to the playoff. 1.3 million viewers. Um, the next, the, the night before, Friday night, Marshall played Boise State on ESPN2 and got 1.4 million viewers. So that's, you know, Marshall, I mean, Boise State is a group of five program that can actually do that. I don't think Boise State needs to move their football to the spring. But I could give you any number of other examples where uh, September twenty first, September twenty first, Toledo played Colorado State at ten fifteen p.m. Eastern on ESPN two and got one hundred eighty five thousand viewers. Um, you think Toledo, Colorado State on a Saturday in April would do more than that? Back to the podcast in a second, but first, a word from our new sponsor, Artifact. Artifact sets you up with one of their professional interviewers to make a podcast episode about whatever you want. You can capture your family history by having your parents sit for an interview about what their lives were like before you were born, or people do them for weddings, birthdays, anniversaries. Bruce and I are going to be commissioning Artifact to record a podcast about the origins of our friendship and our time in this profession together leading up to the creation of the Audible. I went to heyartifact.com and told them a few basic things about what I wanted the artifact to be about. And then I invited folks, that folk being Bruce, for interviews. The whole thing was super easy and it only took a few minutes. We'll be sharing that episode with you when it's ready. But for now, you guys can go to heyartifact.com and hear some samples. There's a ton of ways to use Artifact to capture stories with your friends and family. 
And when you're ready to make an artifact of your own, use code AUDIBLE to get $40 off your first one. That's heyartifact.com. Use the code AUDIBLE for $40 off. The next question is from Dan Klobuchar in Minneapolis. Bruce and Stu, longtime fan of all the pod iterations in your college, in your in your career changes. I read in my own. I was going to say your college career changes, which were significant in my regard. I have a Stu question. This ought to be good. What exactly are your editor in chief duties, Stu? I promise this did not come from one of your one of your uh, proteges at the Athletic. Does everyone have to run their column or feature ideas past you? If so, how often do you turn them down? Also, are there times when you give the green light on an article, but then have to kill it once you've read the finished product? I'm curious about what your role is in the final product of this website. This might be the best question I've ever seen on the the Audible. Well, I don't think the answer is going to be as juicy as he was hoping for there. I don't I don't know that I've killed any articles. Um, so I, I'm more the, I guess you would say, in the, the, the bigger picture guy. Um, I'm in constant contact with, so we have a great team of editors, hands-on editors who actually edit the stories. And they are the people who, you know, I guess in this case, in your, in Dan's scenario, like, you know, Dan, if, if Bruce pitched a story to Dan Uthman and Dan Uthman hated it, like that would be the role he's he's talking about here. How often do you, how often does he spike your stories, Bruce? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Not very often. Not very often. Certainly not. I, I don't think you he would have spiked anything once you'd actually written it. But you guys brainstorm ideas, and some of them he may say, "Yeah, that's that's great. Let's go for it." And some of them he might not. That's normal editor writer relationships. Um, but I'm more just in touch with Dan and the other editors uh, most days. Also in touch with our our um, our team at HQ on the business side as we are constantly strategizing and talking about um, how we're going to approach. For instance, right now we're having a lot of discussions about how to preview a college football season without knowing for sure that it's going to be played. Um, Or, uh, you know, when we were launching our state of the program series, what the format for that should be. Or um, we did a big um, series last year on conference realignment that I was pretty heavily involved in the planning of that and which stories we should do and that sort of thing. So kind of the the guy up in the flight tower, I guess, uh, looking over at everything. And then we've got people who are actually uh, in the weeds, editing the stories, coordinating with their writers what they're going to write about that day, um, and so on and so forth. Do you consider yourself a mentor to the writers at The Athletic? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I would... It, it, I guess the question is, do they consider me a mentor, right? I'm happy to be anybody's mentor that wants me to mentor them. And I would say that um, I do have that kind of relationship with several of our writers, but I'm sure there are other writers who would be be listening to this and be like, Stu's never talked to me about any story I've written. And I apologize if that's the case, but we do have 30-something college football writers. So I'm always available. I'm always happy to talk. And we do have some you know, we have a wide range of experience. Seth Emerson or Pete Sampson does not need me to tell them how to do their jobs better. They, if anything, they should probably be telling me how to do my job. But better. are you insinuating um, that? Are you insinuating that Andy Staples needs for you to tell him how to do his job? Then um, only the um, you know the barbecue part. You know, I know he needs a lot of, of tutoring on that. 
just kidding, Andy. Um, no, we have a, we have a wide range of experience. We have other writers who are just starting out, who who just graduated from college or a couple years out of college. And you know, I do think one thing I am very proud of is that from day one, we have built a culture where, I mean, Bruce, you and I have both worked at places where, like, basically the editing consisted of you send in the story and they paste it into a document and put it up. Right? There wasn't much kind of ongoing dialogue. Um, I would think our writers would tell you that they've never worked anywhere where their editors are more directly involved in everything from brainstorming the ideas to um, how to make the stories better, how to, you know, in some cases, like how do you build sources? How do you, we, we've had whole seminars on that at our staff summit. So we do a lot of mentoring. It's not just me across the board. Um, I th- I'm very proud of all the career development um, exercises we do. Okay. Well, I was hoping it was going to get a little juicier than that. Dan gave you plenty of opportunity to, uh, well, you know, you feel free to spill if you feel like I've, uh, you know, done anything scandalous in your, in your time, uh, with me. Uh, no, no. I mean, I'll admit the, uh, the brow beating you put Matt Fortuna through one day was a little bit tough to take, (laughs) but beyond that, Stu, I think you learned your lesson. Uh, let's wrap with Kyle from Buckhannon, West Virginia. That the, he, Kyle has come on has come up in here before. And I want to say, have you been there? I've not. But the, the reason the why this that came town up is because of Chris Wallace and the Blue Ribbon is came from there. I remember. Oh, that's right. That's right. He said that's where it's from. He said, "I heard Andy and Adam Amin talk about Boise as an underrated college town. Obviously, I think Morgantown is one. But I was wondering what your list would look like." Good question. Um, Man, uh, okay. Some of these are not going to be underrated, actually, when I say them. Um, why don't you go first? Let me think about this a little bit because I can. The first one that jumps to my mind, and look, we can, you know, I'm, I'm going to leave out ones that I just think are properly rated that like most people know about. Manhattan, Kansas. Everybody's like, oh, it's in the middle of nowhere. Uh, little, they joke about being the little apple. It is a cool little college town. Um, I know it has, you know, I, I'm seeing it, maybe somebody 20, 30 years ago wouldn't have said that. It's certainly been built up quite a bit. It's kind of the house Bill Snyder built, uh, if you will. Um, but but that that's the very first one that jumped to my mind. Do you have any others or is that it? Um, I'm sure I do. Give me one second. Um, do you want me to go? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so just being on the road a lot, uh, I have a few that jump to mind. Now, this first one is one that I've talked about on here for my affection for the stadium as much as anything, but I've always liked Blacksburg, uh, Virginia, and love Lane Stadium. It just It's a beautiful place. It has a personality to it. I really like it. Um, the next one, I don't know if, I, if it's fair to call it underrated because I think people know a lot about it now, but it is Eugene, Oregon. I think it's, it's just a really charming place the stadium is really cool um you know it's a it's a little tricky to get to because it's you know for from la it's a two-hour flight and then it's a two-hour drive once you land in portland but uh, you know i just feel like has a very distinct feel to it um i would norman oklahoma i like and i'm very comfortable there because i know where things are it has a torchies it has a really good italian restaurant Benvenuti's that's yeah. one of the best anything with torchies is going to be high on your list yeah uh, but Benvenuti is one of the best restaurants um, in a college town that I've been to it's a really good Italian spot 
Um, I like Norman, Oklahoma. I've just kind of uh, really, it's grown on me over time. And then the one that's kind of a little bit of a wild card, because I hadn't been to it until the last three years, and now we've been there a handful of times. It's tough to get to for me. The weather's usually pretty, pretty, pretty nasty, but I like Iowa City. Um, you know, it's also that place where I remember a couple of years ago, uh, Brady Quinn, we were having his, it was his birthday night. We had a night game. It was the Minnesota game was Saturday night. And I remember, I think I, I don't know, I bought like 17 shots of Jameson for like $33 at Donnelly's pub. Uh, for that reason alone, I think I'm a, I'm an Iowa city fan. So, uh, those are the ones that I would say fit into the category of underrated. I mean, I don't think anyone's going to say, like Boulder, Colorado is underrated. It's a gorgeous place, but I think people know that. And uh, so those are the ones that really kind of pop in my head. Yeah, and I assumed Eugene would be kind of in that too obvious category. I think Eugene is, it's probably one of my top five in the whole country. It's, it's, I love Eugene. I just think that people, I'll tell you what though, Corvallis, don't, don't sleep on Corvallis. It's the, it's the cow town, if you will. That's what they call it. Um, but uh, our good friend, Lindsay Schnell, she went to school there. She, Lived there after college for a while. She took me around once um, after I covered a game there. And, you know, it's tiny, but, I w- I, you know, if you told me you are going to go live there for a year, I'd be f- absolutely fine with that. Um, there's another one I was just thought of. Uh, oh, you ever been to you, – yeah, you've, I'm sure you've – have you done a football game at IU, Bloomington? Uh, I have. No, I haven't done a game there, but I've been there. I, I mean, Bloomington, which, you know, living and growing up in Cincinnati and having friends that went there, I've been there many times, uh, is one of the more picturesque college campuses um, I think you can find. Uh, great town, Nick's, uh, is, which has come up on here before. Somebody, an IU fan, told us we should go to Nick's, and I was like, oh, are you kidding me? I've been to Nick's. Um, certainly that would be on the list. Athens, Ohio would be on the list. Another one that I know just primarily from, from growing up there. Um, I don't think that's one anybody would think of, right? Like we need more, we need more like that. We need more group of five or even FCS towns that would truly be under the radar. All right, Bruce. Well, a newsy episode to say the least. I hope it's not completely out of date by the time people read this, because it does seem like the scheduling conference by conference scheduling things are going to be very fluid, but that means we'll just have even more to talk about next week. We'll see you next time. If you enjoy the Audible, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review and a rating if you could, too. It helps us get the word out. Our producer is John Hayes. Our theme song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. You can download their music on Spotify or Apple Music. Follow me on Twitter at SLMandel. Follow Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB. And if you're not yet a subscriber to The Athletic, what are you waiting for? You can get 40% off an annual subscription by using this link, theathletic.com slash theaudible. That's 40% off your subscription to The Athletic. We'll find a way to adrenaline. It doesn't matter what it takes.